0: or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks, dating back to
1: 1996. Good morning, welcome back. We have to go around the room introduce ourselves, take your time and a Alicia. John. Jack. Larry. My name is Mark. Mark
2: Bruce. Christopher. Yeah. I'm Christopher. Bill. I'm Mike. My name is Hal. I'm Bob. I'm Richard. J. Jim. Ben. Is that Scott. So my name is Harley. I'm Jerry. My name is Jeff. I'm David. I'm, I'm Ed. Ed.
1: I'm Clint. My name is Jim. Yes. Dennis. Andre. My name is Prasada Chittan. I'm Kay.
3: And I'm Laura.
1: Welcome everyone. <coughs> um, Ryuko really Laura Burgess, a lay and Buddhist <laughs> teacher in the Zen tradition, <laughs> tradition lectures and leads retreats at different practice centers in Northern California. A teacher of children for over 30 years, she trains other teachers to bring mindfulness practice into the elementary classroom. Laura co-founded the Sangha and Recovery Program at Zen Center and has a particular interest in the intersection of Buddhism and recovery. She is an abiding teacher at the Lennox House Meditation Group in Oakland. So welcome, Laura. Thank you.
3: Thank you, Grisha. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to be here with you in this uh, beautiful haven in the middle of the city. Uh, It's a privilege and a joy to to be able to sit with others. And we say in Buddhism, this chance rarely occurs in any lifetime. And I'm sure you're as grateful for this opportunity as I am. I was having breakfast this morning with my partner David and his grandkids. And I I said to them, I have to leave pretty soon because I'm going to go give a talk at a Buddhist sangha. Uh, do, do you know what a sangha is? And Skyler, who's seven, looked at me, without skipping a beat, very serious and with great authority said, It's when somebody farts. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> so,
3: right. less, less we take ourselves too seriously. <laughs> the theme of my talk today is, is living from the inside out. Uh, kind of exploring what that might mean for each of us. I came across Dante's words recently, Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within a forest dark, for the straightforward pathway had been lost. How are we to find our way within a forest dark when the past is lost to us? Choigam Trungpa, the Tibetan Buddhist teacher, spoke of the path of the spiritual warrior, And he wasn't speaking about uh, an agent of destruction, but as one who is brave. The way he defined one who is brave is someone who is not afraid of themselves. I I read a lot of Carlos Castaneda in my youth, and it it seems that perhaps the character of Don Juan in his books was a figment of of Castaneda's imagination but there seemed to be a lot of wisdom in those books for me, and they were a real signpost in my younger years. Uh, Castaneda, too, talks about being a warrior, and his definition of a warrior is one who is impeccable. One who is impeccable. I was thinking that maybe a good definition of impeccable comes from Gandhi, Mohandas Gandhi, who said that happiness comes when our thoughts... Our words and our deeds are in alignment with one another. When our thoughts, our words, and our deeds are in alignment with one another. This echoes uh, an early teaching of the Buddha, the Dhammapada, where he he says the same thing in different words. When our inner being is in line with our behavior in the world, uh, this can be a prescription for a deep spiritual satisfaction. And happiness. The Buddha said, I teach about suffering and an end to suffering. And that end to suffering must be a kind of happiness. Uh, I've been examining the book Living an Examined Life, and we've been studying this book at the Lennox House Meditation Group. James Hollis talks about the predicament we face when we compare ourselves to others rather than turning back we would say in Buddhism, shining the light inward, when we compare ourselves to others, either an accomplished parent or a sibling or a a peer, a neighbor. He goes on to say that few realize that it isn't what we do, but rather what we are in service to, or what we are in service to inside that makes all the difference. It isn't what we do, but rather what we are in service to inside that makes all the difference. When I first read that, I was puzzled, because from a practice perspective, our lives don't heal until we examine and transform what we do in the world. This is what practice helps us do, too. Dogen Zenji, our our Japanese ancestor of the 12th century, said we take the backward step to shine the light inward. Um, to study the Buddhism, to study Buddhism is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self, and to forget the self is to be awakened by all things. So these teachings speak of transformation. Maybe what Hollis means is that whatever we are in service to determines what we do in the world. Whatever our inmost uh, intention is, our values, our understanding our transformation affects what we do in the world. And it seems to me that in order to know ourselves deeply, this is something Dante talked about a lot, it's important to recognize what we are in service to. What are we motivated by? What is most important to us? Uh, it's, It's important, I would say, too, though, not to cut ourselves off from our our natural instincts because they can be a source of nourishing wholeness. Uh, Hollis validates this when he says, too much instinct, instinctual behavior constricts us to an animal existence, but too much consciousness separates us from our natural sources. So I think this points to a kind of balance between our, our animal needs, our instinctual selves, and uh, what we might call big mind in Buddhism, or our higher self. Paula says, the first half of life, at least for most of us, is essentially a giant, unavoidable mistake.
4: <laughs> 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 and I
3: could certainly, I could certainly uh, identify with that. In fact, Suzuki Roshi used to say, life is one big mistake. And he'd laugh. Uh, <laughs> but I think when we think of the first parts of our lives, uh, Maybe for most of us it was a time when we were experimenting with freedom and letting go of things that had constricted us and turning our back on the small-minded prejudices and uh, prescriptions of our family of origin and and our culture. We might have been rebelling against something uh, without realizing that we might have been harming ourselves in the process. At that time, we were (coughs) in service to... uh, in my case, e- excess and experimentation. I remember my my definition of freedom was doing whatever I wanted without caring about the consequences. And there came a point in my life where I had to take another path. Uh, I learned a lot from that path of excess. You know, it gave me the, the courage to travel through the Mid-East to India, overland, and have all kinds of adventures and looking back on it especially now that I have a daughter of my own I see how naive <laughs> and uh, ignorant I was but luckily nothing terrible happened uh, Hollis says the second half of life doesn't necessarily mean middle age but rather when you come to a point in your life where you have to make a choice where the things that you've been doing don't work so well anymore and you need to chart a path for the rest of your, of your life Sometimes we, I think, many times people come to Buddhist practice after a deep experience of impermanence or loss. That was that was true in my case. That everything that I thought I could count on was ripped out from under me, and I needed to find another way of being. So Hollis describes this as when we come to some deep experience in life that causes us to reexamine who we are, what we serve, apart from our history, our roles, our community. Our identity, the kind of career we've had, even the relationships that we're in, we step back and look at the causes and conditions that have shaped us. And again, these might be influences from our family of origin, from our culture, and and of course even from our own wise or unwise actions in the world that hopefully we've learned from. Hollis says if we react strongly in counter to our parents, uh, we're still living our lives in relation to and in response to someone else's life. You know, I think a lot of us sort of just wanted to do the opposite of whatever our parents had done. Carl Jung observed that the work of being involves three parts. And Hollis, by the way, is a Jungian therapist. Carl Jung says our unfolding life begins with insight But then it requires courage and endurance. Insight, insight into our life, into the causes and conditions that have shaped us, and then the courage and endurance to forge our own path and have confidence in that. And I I would say this reflects Buddhist practice. Insight, courage, and endurance. Hollis gives an example of a couple that might come to therapy to work on their marriage without first examining the unconscious forces that attracted them to one another in the first place. Uh, Sometimes in relationship, we attempt to either replicate or replace or destroy the model given to us by our respective parents. Um, We might also carry into our relationships a deep fear either of being overwhelmed by intimacy or or abandoned by it, a fear that started way back in our childhood experiences. Um, I was speaking to a friend this weekend who had the experience when her parents divorced that her parents couldn't speak to each other, so her father would drop her off at a gas station, and later her mother would come and pick her up. And I, I can only imagine the sense of abandonment and lack of safety that that gave this person. Um, So as we forge this path of our own with courage and integrity, we can begin to find what is true and beautiful and essential and right to us and to serve those things instead of the prescriptions that or the habitual ideas and, and practices we've kind of been given by our culture. But how can we really know what is right for us? Now, Hawa says our body knows, our deepest feelings know, even though we learned in childhood to try to ignore those messages from our true self. And I often say to my third graders, do you notice that sometimes if you tell a lie or if you do something unkind, your stomach gets a little bit upset and they all go, <laughs> yeah. You know, our body knows. Uh, and tries to tell us when we're on the wrong path whatever we might think of as health or wholeness and that that can be very individual um, among each of us it must have something to do with aligning our outside choices with our inner reality to echo Gandhi's words when our thoughts and our actions and our words are in alignment with each other and I think we've had the experience of knowing when we were on the right path and finding energy there when we may have been a little bit off course and then righted ourselves, it feels right you know we, we know deep within ourselves we 're on the right path, even if that uh, writing of our course involves a breakup or loss or a, a the abandonment of a, a previous identity or career um, this seems to me that to be the path of our life and the path of practice. When we're doing when what we're doing isn't right for us, we have a feeling of irritability or anger or or, or being burned out uh, and when we're doing what is right for us even if it doesn't agree with others around us, we have a sense of purpose and meaning and satisfaction and it takes a strong inner sense of ourselves to proceed in that direction that feels right for us even if others are telling us we're on the wrong path I I think we've probably all been in that position I think that we tend to carry around with us a kind of armor or protection that we developed when we were very young to protect ourselves from and to have some sense of personal integrity um, in spite of other people around us criticizing us or judging us or not deeply accepting us, and if we didn't, if our parents didn't gaze at us with unconditional love, mm-hmm. uh, we may have had to find that within ourselves, or in later lives, through our family of choice, the people we choose as our as our deep deep friends. Um, but n- now, these very very uh, important survival mechanisms that we developed as as children can constrict us and limit us to a kind of half-lived habitual life. So we can start to let go of that fear and protection and live from a deeper part of ourselves. This is what practice calls us to do. And for those of us in recovery, this is what recovery calls us to do, to live from a deeper part of ourselves and to see life as a summons to show up for ourselves, to stand up for ourselves and and find what's right for us and live from that place. In other words, not to be afraid of ourselves, and not to be afraid of that inner voice. So moving from creatures of adaptation to people whose lives testify to the unfolding of the possibilities of being. And again, this requires insight into the way we've been formed, courage to proceed in our own way, and endurance to keep doing that even if everyone around us tells us we're in the wrong. I think probably most of us have had the uh, experience of trying to deal with some habitual behavior or thought pattern or addiction, only to fall right back into it because it's so familiar. You know, even depression can have a kind of sensual familiarity about it, and we can fall into that because maybe that's all we feel we really know, we're comfortable there. And that might be because we just weren't ready at the time to make the profound changes that are required to really change our course, uh, to overcome our guarded and habitual ways of being. I think of practice and recovery too as not becoming a different person, but becoming who we actually are underneath the distractions and uh, fog of uh, ignorance and, and habitual behaviors. One of my earliest impressions of Zen Buddhism was an article I saw in a magazine, I think it was Sunset Magazine, about Japanese ceramics, and it talked about the practice of kintsuji. Kintsugi. The syllable kin means golden, and the syllable tsuji means joinery, to join with gold. In other words, kintsuji means to join with gold. And this is an ethic developed in, in, in Japanese culture over many centuries, where if the potter breaks a cup or bowl, uh, he or she gathers up the pieces and mends it with threads of gold. And in doing this, the mistake stands out in beautiful relief rather than being hidden. Uh, So they put it back together with, with lacquer infused with gold, so rather than disguising or hiding the cracks or mistakes, we, they're, they're illuminated with gold. Um, the practice of, of Kintsugi comes out of the, the ideal of wabi-sabi where something is old and well used, something that served us well is respected and honored. Uh, uh, something that's simple and unpretentious and aged has a, has a rustic or weathered quality And I I find this such a beautiful idea when I think of our own culture where everything is expendable, um, our kind of youth-oriented society where people and things tend to get discarded the minute they're the least bit shabby, uh, when they're slightly bruised. Wabi-sabi is a wonderful reminder of the preciousness of worn but wise and special people and things. You know, one of my practices is to look at my kind of beat up Kitchen Spoon and thank it for serving me so well all these years. You know, we can thank those objects that help (coughs) us do our work and and honor them. There's a story about this ideal of wabi-sabi. Senno Rikyu was traveling through southern Japan and he visited a wealthy donor and um, he was invited to dinner by this host who wanted to impress him because he had a beautiful elaborate antique jar. But he was very frustrated because as they sat around at dinner, rather than admiring this antique jar, uh, Riku spoke reverently about a brush outs- uh, a bush- branch outside that was swaying in the wind with just a few leaves on it. And of course, this really frustrated this wealthy man who wanted admiration for his beautiful vase. So he, he became very frustrated and broke this jar and went to bed but his guests gathered up the shards and joined them together using kintsuji and when Ryuko returned on another visit and saw this repaired jar with the veins of gold highlighting it in the broken places he exclaimed, now it is magnificent.
4: <laughs>
3: and I think you don't have to look at this too closely to see what a wonderful metaphor this is For our own cracked beings, our own uh, injured selves, our own wounded beings. All of us are slightly cracked and uh, (laughs) all of us have places where we're broken. Sometimes we forget that the places in us where we're broken are exactly the places where we connect with other people. You know, people don't love us because we're perfect. They love us because we're human and because we're of flaws and, and that those flaws are tinged with gold because they help us connect with other people. If I've suffered a terrible grief, I have something to offer someone else. Uh, if someone's going through a period of grief, even if I haven't experienced that same thing, I can make a big pot of minestrone soup and sit with them and hold their hand. If we've suffered a great loss, and we all have, we can we can comfort those who've lost uh, and if we've been through some life-changing trauma, we can help those who are experiencing the same thing. Earlier, some of us were talking about the privilege of working with children who've been traumatized and to, to be a trustworthy adult in a child's life is a great uh, privilege. If we can turn around and face our own life with insight, courage, and endurance and, and, and forge our own path, we can move towards healing those places that are broken, that glow with a kind of golden thread, and we can embrace those uh, parts of us that are wounded and healed. Sometimes it's our flaws and our, and our mistakes and our misdeeds, and, and even our unskillful actions that make us accessible and lovable, and yet we sometimes think we're supposed to be on this uh, ever-upwards uh, trajectory towards some kind of perfection. Uh, We don't sit to try to improve ourselves, to perfect ourselves, or to become a better version of ourselves. We sit in the way we do today to become exactly who we are. It's often said in our Zen practice that we don't sit with any gaining idea, and yet we can't help but notice that we get a little better (laughs) when we sit. You know, we don't do it for that reason, and yet there's a growing sense of comfort in our own skin and a kind of redemption of the places of us, the mistakes we've made and the faults that we have, a kind of redemption of those things because they make us human and accessible to others. All our flaws and cracks and the places in us that are seamed with gold. Now, do I have time to tell you a story? Do I have time? Uh, I've been investigating this book called In the Ever After Fairy Tales for the Second Half of Life. And um, this story, that, uh, The Dragon King of the Sea, I think is a wonderful echo of, of the talk that I just gave, and I do love to tell stories to children. And I think these are fairy tales about this middle part of life where we, we look towards what's to come. While living by the ocean, there was an old fisherman and his wife, and... They were very poor, but they were able to eke out a living from the sea. They lived in a tiny hut, and every day the fisherman would go out and angle and angle. And one day he was out fishing, and no matter what he did, he couldn't catch anything. And as the shadows lengthened on the land and the sun began to go down, he decided to try one more time, so he cast his line, and he caught a fish. Well, he looked at that fish, and the eyes were so warm and human with a kind of sadness in them that that something in him was touched and he threw that fish back into the ocean. Well, he was very surprised the next morning as he sat on the shore mending his fishing nets when the sea parted and a young boy stepped out of the ocean and yet he was completely dry. And the boy walked up to the fisherman and took his hand and said, Yesterday, when you threw that fish back into the sea, you saved me from an ancient curse. I was that fish. And now my father, the dragon king of the sea, would like to thank you. He made a gesture, and the ocean parted, and they walked down this pathway till they came to the palace of the dragon king of the sea. Well, when the fisherman stepped inside, he was amazed to see the wealth and splendor all around him, beautiful. Tapestries hung from on the walls, and there were great, large tables filled with piles of abundant food, and there was music and dancing, and he was quite entranced and uh, intrigued with this. Uh, but as the day wore on, he realized. He he said to the prince, "I need to go home now." The prince took him aside and said, "My father's going to offer you a gift. Be sure to ask him for his magic." golden measuring cup that sits by his throne and sure enough when the fisherman told the king he needed to leave the king said I'm so indebted to you for saving my son's life please look around anything you want is yours and the fisherman said well I'd kind of like that golden measuring cup there by (laughs) your throne and the king hesitated because it was his most valuable possession but his son said father what is more important to you my life or your measuring cup. And so of course the king quickly handed the measuring cup to the fisherman, and the fisherman returned to his his hut and shared his news with, with his wife. Well to test it out, they asked for a better home. and in that place of that shabby little hut, a beautiful cottage appeared. and uh, they looked at each other in amazement. They decided not to overdo it, but you know they had everything they needed for a good life. And so this went on for a while. Uh, but there was a wicked woman in the area. I don't know why it has to be a woman. But <laughs> it's a wicked woman. She hears a rumor about this cup, so she comes and knocks on the door. The fisherman's wife comes to the door, and, and the woman says, you know, I'm greatly in need of rice. All I have is this jewel. Can I trade you the jewel for some rice? And the fisherwoman had some compassion for her and went to the... The the woman noticed where, where she went to get this golden cup, filled it with rice, and then poured it into the woman's sack, and she went on her way. Well, that night, a thief broke into the house and stole that golden measuring cup. And very soon, the fisherman and his wife were back in the same situation they'd been before, in poverty. Well, they had a dog and a cat, and the dog and cat were quite upset that their masters had been reduced to this poverty once again, so they decided to find that woman and follow her mm-hmm. as she went about her business. And sure enough, at the end of the day, that woman dove into the river in town and swam across, followed by the dog and cat, trying to keep, make sure she didn't see them. And she made her way into the dark, dark forest, remember Dante, mm-hmm. into the dark forest, And sure enough, that's where this thief lived. So secreting themselves behind bushes, the dog and cat watched until the woman and the thief left. They went into the house and snooped around, and they came to this uh, storage cabinet. They thought for sure the golden cup must be in there. Right at that moment, a rat came running across the floor, and the cat caught it and said, Call the king of the rats immediately, and all his subjects, or I'll kill you right now well the rat did as she bid and the king of the rats and all of his subjects appeared and they gnawed through the door of the, of the, of the storage uh, cabinet sure enough inside was that golden cup so the dog and the cat made their way back to the river the cat held the cup in her mouth and she was riding on the back of the dog and the dog couldn't help it he kept saying do you have the cup do you have the cup well, the cat couldn't answer because if no. she opened her mouth, the cup would fall. <laughs> finally, he pestered her so much finally she said, "Yes, I have the cup." It fell out of her mouth deep into the river, not, never to be seen again. So <laughs> they were so distraught at their mistake. Uh, the dog went back home, but the cat prowled along the edge of the beach, you know, hoping she might the cup might wash up on the shore. But all that came ashore was a fish, and so she caught that fish and went back to the to the place where the fisherman's wife was and he thought, at least now she'll have something to eat. Well, she cut the fish open and of course inside was the magic measuring cup. And so the fisherman and his wife kept that cup in a much safer place after that time. So that is uh, the palace of the Dragon King of the Sea. And I'd like to talk about some elements in that story because it has a lot to teach us about this middle part of our life. Uh, In fairy tales where there's poverty, it indicates loss and impermanence. And uh, a fisherman is someone who has access to the depths of the ocean, which in a fairy tale represents the unconscious, as the dark forest also represents the uh, the unconsciousness the dark unconscious, you know. So, when the fisherman goes out there and he catches this fish, he does something that's counter to everything he's learned and everything he's done his whole life. He throws the fish back in the water. And this is an indication that in, in our middle life, we can loosen the identity that we have. We can play with it a little bit and let go of these ideas we have about ourselves. And the idea is if we do that, if, we, if we're a little more playful with our sense of identity, some riches can come to us, or new doors can open. Now, my motto is always, when one door closes, another door also closes. But that's <laughs> that, You know, that's because I'm a pessimist. In this story, because he does this counterintuitive thing and throws the fish back, everything comes his way, there... There's a lot of research on middle life and who does well in in, in uh, middle life, and one thing they found is that this isn't true of everybody. this is kind of a gross generalization, but that that men tend to become more nurturing and tender and and more uh, compassionate in their later life. if If in their earlier life they had to be shut down their feelings, often boys are told not to cry and not to have feelings. They learn that in their youth and shut down. And later in life, they're, they're able to open up to more tenderness and a kind of sweetness. And by the same token, women who might have put aside their own needs to adhere to whatever culture was telling them that they had to be agreeable and obedient and all those things, that in later life, women might be more um, aggressive or um, dynamic. By the same token, if a woman has had a career and has been very aggressive in her life, she also might, might let some tenderness and nurturance into her life later in life. So that to me speaks of, we're looking for some kind of balance in the middle of life to grow ourselves into directions where we haven't gone before, either because culture has told us that we can't or because we haven't let ourselves grow in those ways. Uh, Robert Peck in his research said that those who do well in later life can adapt to more f- a fluid relationship with identity, not so attached to their social identity or their identity as a wife or a husband or as a teacher or as a lawyer or as a doctor. Now this little boy that steps out of the ocean, that represents our playful younger self that we may have also suppressed. You know, that spirit of adventure and openness and... Uh, You know, I think of Skyler at the breakfast table this Mm -hmm. morning with his definition of sangha. Um, You know, we we can let that playful child in us reawaken in our later years. Uh, Now, this is a Korean folktale, and in Asia, the dragon is not a fearsome beast that has to be conquered. A Dragon represents uh, wisdom and dynamism and energy and forcefulness, uh, transformation. And the dragon king's wealth is a kind of psychological wealth that becomes available to the fisherman. Uh, also, our collective wholeness and our potential. Uh, the woman and the thief uh, makes me think of, in, you know, in Buddhism, we say that wisdom and compassion have to come up together. If we're just compassionate, then we might not protect that golden cup very well. You know, if we're just wise, we might shut ourselves off from other people just to protect ourselves. So compassion uh, softens our wisdom, and wisdom strengthens our compassion. So I think the fact that they're not guarding this wealth that they've accrued from negative forces shows that, you know, we we do have to protect in some ways our inner self and our inner wealth. Uh, from the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune Um, it's interesting to me that it's a measuring cup because that indicates some kind of consciousness of of control or containment it it sort of talks about another kind of wisdom to me Uh, I think that in our in our youthfulness i think of my own misadventures in my 20s you know where i was casting about and floundering around the world that's a time when we're trying to find ourselves and and then you know paradoxically in the middle of our life we throw that we can throw that all up in the air and let parts of ourselves that have been unexpressed come forward and manifest themselves because we have some grounding in life, we have some maturity and some sense of uh, continuity, and sense of uh, we can afford now maybe to open up and be a little bit go back to some of that youthful wildness that we had, but we have a measuring cup now. You know, we have some maturity and consciousness to apply to that adventurous spirit that we had when we were young. So I'm really enjoying this book by James Hollis, uh, "Living uh, an Examined Life." And, of course, he's echoing Socrates' words that the unexamined life is not worth living. You might feel I've talked about a lot of things today that aren't Buddhism, but for me, they all weave together into uh, a way that we can look at practice as an adventure. You know, there's a lot of discipline in practice. And when I first came to Zen practice and found myself sitting cross-legged staring at a wall for hours on end, I wasn't sure why I needed to do that but I look back now and I needed that discipline I needed that I needed community I needed silence I needed to to heal um myself from the the excesses that I'd indulged in and find a find a golden thread find a golden thread to heal those places in me So thank you very much for your kind attention and uh, we have time for some discussion. If you have a question or if you have an insight or you'd like to share about a time in your life, you know, Yogi Berra said, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. (laughs) Uh, Maybe you've come to a fork in the road and you've you've gone along the path less taken. There's something like that you'd like to share that would be lovely as well. So thank you.
1: I just want to thank you. Your talks are always luminous and full of, it's a harvest of wisdom. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I uh, was in China studying Zhigong and we took, three of us took a, the barge on the Grand Canal up to Suzhou and um, I saw a painting of an alchemist summonsing the green dragon. Uh-huh. It was one of those uh, stupid, what do they call those squirrel paintings? That's oh, Way too expensive. Way too expensive. I went back to the hotel, took a nap, and I had one dream. that just said, <coughs> "Spend." <laughs> <laughs> so I went back to the next day and bought it, and I loved it ever since.
4: Oh uh, wow! Loved the clarity that dream. Yeah. Yeah. Oh boy, yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: Thank you. That's mm-hmm. a great story.
2: Um, I'll just say something brief uh, about valuing something that's old or used and um, I worked in mental health and early on in my career one of my patients after some time came to me and said that I was just like an old shoe. <laughs> <laughs> and that um, was a compliment. I wasn't quite sure how to take <laughs> it at first, but now I think about that, you know, familiar, comfortable
0: all relaxation.
3: Yeah. With that old shoe the, the sharp edges have been worn off. <laughs> Yes?
5: Well, when you first started that story, I thought, I heard this one before, this mm-hmm. is very similar to the one I heard about a very poor fisherman and his wife, um, and he catches his magic fish and he lets it go, You are shaking your head a bit of you know this story. The
3: fisherman and his wife?
5: Yeah, yeah, yeah and, and, she, and the magic fish, he kept granting his wishes, and the fisherman was a lot humble, he just asked for smaller things, and the wife kept pushed him back until. She wanted to be a goddess, final hands. And she said, no, that's enough. (laughs) (laughs) He went back and it's just a regular shack again. So I think there's another message in in that one is about um, keeping our expectations, you know, reasonable and and not being consumed by greed.
3: Yeah. You know, I share that story with my third graders and I ask them, uh, uh, is is it all the wife's fault that they lose everything in the end? And... and, uh, Sometimes the kids go, well, he didn't have to do everything she said. Well, that's true. Or they say, you know, why didn't he just go back and tell her he didn't catch anything?
4: Yeah. And
3: and I, you know, I say, why do you think he keeps doing what she wants him to, even though he doesn't want to? And they say, well, he's afraid of her. <laughs> yeah. She's there's a lot a scary in woman. there's a lot in that story. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. But yeah, in that case, he doesn't follow his inner voice, yeah. does he? He goes along with her. Yeah,
5: in the story, he's a basically decent person who just wants modern things. Yeah, he just, but he gave. He portrayed that instant just of
3: yeah. his yanking life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a that's a, a grim fairy yeah. tale. Yeah. Could you talk a little more
1: about <coughs> your sense of kids' spiritual <coughs> world?
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my my third graders are my greatest teachers, and uh, when I when I look at them as luminous beings, it it. My, my days go a lot better because they can also be quite aggravating I have to say but but they're they live in the present a lot more than I, I adults tend to do they're a lot more fluid you know and they'll 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 something terrible will happen at recess and they let it go you know it it can they have a sort of a fluid relationship to the things that come and go and uh kind of uh, i wonder if because they're closer to birth, whatever happens before we're born, wherever we are, if they're closer to that to that time, um, I would say that they're they're just naturally spiritual, it's not something they talk about, but they have this kind of freshness and fresh approach to life, and especially in my discussions about literature with kids. You know, they have marvelous insights. Uh, we, I teach them Cinderella stories from around the world. And when I teach them, one year I was teaching the, the one, sort of the standard Cinderella where the prince has these three balls and the, and the princess comes and then she loses her shoe, meanwhile she's home doing all the work. One of my boys says, you know, I think in this story Cinderella does all the work and the prince just has balls. <laughs> I, I blanched, but then it's, oh, that's, I I, <laughs> I mean, that's probably truer than he thought <laughs> you spoke,
2: You spoke earlier of the armor yeah mm-hmm. I, I would suggest that little kids have that freshness because it, it's out of the hurt and the, the disappointments and the you know the banged the way that we get smashed in life that you
3: built the armor that then That's right. Yeah. Cuts
2: us off from that yeah. freshness and knowing.
3: Yeah, I think children can remind us what life is like before life happens to us. <laughs> Which isn't to say that children many children are dealing with real you know, real trauma and and difficulty in life. And they courageously go on with their days. I have a lot of uh, admiration for children. John,
2: um, I was thinking about this developmental line and as a gay man and how it you know, there's some the conventional path of the first half of life was not my path. Mm-hmm. Um, and insofar as it was, it was because I was hiding my authentic self in a way. Mm-hmm. I mean not that heterosexual men also don't hide their authentic self, but it is a particular way that that self had to be hidden mm-hmm. because it was um, endangered. And that um, the, um, and I don't know if this is different. I mean, I'm just wondering kind of out loud, what, that second half of life, that trajectory, how that might be different for a gay men. And, and for me, I think it's more about, um, and this may be not unique, but, um, about letting what was hidden become seen, mm-hmm. and uh, it's like it was like it's like that self is waiting to be seen, and um, not so much, and, and not seen in the sense that I'm worried about what others think of me, but there's a kind of transparency and vulnerability mm-hmm. um, that is a theme in the second half of my life. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, for me, it's been a lot about embodying. Um, embodiment about coming into mind, which is ironic because it's the second half of life. Your body's aging, and mm-hmm. you know, there's aches and pains. But that, as a gay man, that has been a theme for me the since <coughs> But it'd be interesting to about <coughs> And you know, of course, the fairy tale is archetype, so it's, I mean, that's the <coughs> reason, so it doesn't necessarily apply to heterosexual or.
3: No, but you know what? I think I could tell that story again as a coming out story. Mm. Because this is a story of a person who hasn't had access to his inner wealth, his inner being. And he finds that. And I think whenever we, when we're suppressing parts of ourselves out of fear or out of protection, uh, there are there's hidden wealth in there that comes out when we have the relief of being who we are. This happens in recovery where we... We've gone along this path of addiction, and then suddenly, we take a different fork in the road, and a huge amount of energy and and possibility and friends and opportunities available to us. So that that story could be a coming out story for the fishermen mm-hmm. <laughs> Yes. Thank you for a very
4: wonderfully elegant
1: talk. I really appreciate at that point if somebody would scream Transcribe this. This would be an easy one to publish. You know. Oh, thank I've you, Jeff. Done somebody else's talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really like the the idea of the golden thread and the ram's of course, it made me think of, of Leonard Collins cracks are where the light light gets through.
3: There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets yeah. in. Yeah. yeah.
1: And also
0: the wounded healer.
1: That you know our wounds are our hips. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. as you said they help us connect
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. what was the name of the um, fairy tale book for middle life uh, let me
3: see it's called uh, it's by Alan chanan c h i n n in the ever after in the Ever After. And then the book the book I'm referring to about living an examined life, that's by James Hollis. Um, and those, that book is full of short chapters and he recommends you read them and digest them, not just read the whole thing. But, And you can really do that. They're really very, very uh, dense, these chapters, and uh, you can, you need some time to reflect on them and process them.
1: Yes. I really appreciate the golden thread visual too, that story. Um, I have uh, as we have talked before about my kids um, and I have, it made me think of, there are many things in my classroom, spots here and there where children who have been, trauma impacted kids who have like been raging and they've destroyed things or damaged things, you know. And my initial response is, like, oh, you know, like ruin this and ruin that and um, teachers, you know, have a lot of money to replace all this stuff the stuff in the school district blah, 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 Anyway, but now I can see those things mm-hmm. as some sort of a golden thread that, you yeah. know, those kids, mm-hmm. even though a lot of the time they're dysregulated and haven't tried play experience, at least sometimes they're not, mm-hmm. you know, and the old they- thread between what's, what has happened and what what's it's
3: like Yeah, any form of behavior is a kind of communication and uh, your effort (laughs) to see them, you know, to to see them is powerful because I think a lot of those kids they just don't get seen and that's what they're crying out for. So that you can offer them that as a teacher is, is a gift for both of you, I think.
1: thank you very much much. so uh, announcements yes
3: I'd like to just say that uh, there's a meditation group at Lennox House, there's a flyer out on the table every Saturday from 9.30 to 11.30 Uh, I'm there the second and fourth Saturdays of the month but it meets every Saturday for meditation and discussion and it's it's Buddhism for people in recovery, but in the sense that we're all recovering from something. Not everybody in that group is is in recovery as we think of it. But uh, John is a member of that group. If you might, people might talk with you about it if they have any questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, Where is it? It's at 290 Lennox House. It's near Fairyland, on right on Lake Merritt, uh, just up from Lake Merritt. Um,
1: I'm your host today, uh, there's hot water for tea, if uh, you do drink tea, just put your dirty cup in the dishwasher, there's refreshments, and at 12.30 people gather to go to lunch, also we have a sign-up list for our GDF directory, if you're interested in putting the name on that, for Denza. and then I'll be coming around with a double, that means giving, a $10 donation or whatever you can give.
5: It occurred to me that not everybody may know of or have an image of. We produce a newsletter <laughs> <laughs> quarterly, which um, the bulk of it is a transcribed talk from one of our wonderful speakers, as well as other pragmatic of the upcoming speakers their biographies and such. And uh, we send out paper copies of these to about. About two thirds of which are prisoners all over the country. We don't have access to things like this very much. So we, we um, after the TM conversation um, period, we have a sort of a work party. I think of it like a gate which We <laughs> put all the, uh, the the newsletters into envelopes and label and stamp them, and all that sort of stuff. You know, Their hands up and say they can, say, wow, you can do that. Great! Mm-hmm. And there, you can get on the list to receive the newsletter, which is online. Um, and there's also a few copies left over from this, which you can pick up. There are some previous
4: ones sitting out there on the conference
1: right now, if you don't know. Um, so thank you. Thank you. Uh, and then next week, uh, our teacher will be Joe Good started simple Buddhism and art practice. Joe Good is artistic director of the Joe Good Performance Group and a professor at the Department of Theater, Dance, and Performance Studies at UC Berkeley. He has had a meditation practice since 1979 and has incorporated Buddhist principles and meditation practices into his choreographic works. His work blends theater, dance, and spoken word to focus on the fallibility and perfection of being human, believing that the creative impulse is a step toward the alleviation of suffering. Yes, for next week. Any other announcements? All right. gather for dedication.
2: Dedication of marriage. By the power and truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow, and may all live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion, believing in the
1: equality of all that lives.
0: Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month, and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live. Please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.